This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, July 6th, 2016, episode 27, concerning another take on the love of Edgar and Alfred. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today, we're wrapping up the little run we've had of episodes tracing a reverse chronology through the last couple of generations of Anglo-Saxon royalty before the Norman Conquest. But we're not moving any further up or down the timeline. Uh, Instead, we're jumping sideways into a different kind of history writing. Well, different from what William of Malmesbury was doing last episode. Because today, we're looking at history as poetry. Something previewed in our Anglo-Saxon Chronicle extracts from two episodes back. The Chronicle gave us a pair of poetic eulogies embedded and preserved within the prose annals. Our text for today is a full-fledged poetic history, or metrical chronicle, as it's sometimes called. It is Geoffrey Gamer's L'Histoire des Anglais, a history of England from the 6th century up to the death of William Rufus in 1100, written in Anglo-Norman French verse. But before we get to Gamer, I want to pull William of Malmesbury back up on stage for just a moment. I want to get us thinking a little bit about what we want and expect out of the histories that we read. Last time, I emphasized William's role as a major precursor of what we would deem modern historical scholarship. The scholarly virtues that William is praised for, like the breadth of his sources, the candid evaluation of them, uh, along with his interest in the complex human motivations that shape events, these are present in the preface that he wrote to the deeds of the English kings, the Gesta Regum Anglorum, um, or at least the emphasis on his sources is very clearly there. It's an interesting little document in its own right, so I thought I'd share it and then we can compare it to Gamer's stated philosophy of history writing. So here is William of Malmesbury's preface from the J.A. Giles translation. Oh, and a quick clarification that I ought to have made last episode, but forgot to, and I realize nobody really cares, uh, but I do believe in giving proper credit, even to the long dead. So I've said this is Giles' translation. That's what's on the title page of the edition and how it's cataloged. Uh, But Giles is really just providing some correction and additions to an existing 1815 translation by the Reverend John Sharp. So it's better said that this is the Sharp and Giles translation of the Gesta Regum Anglorum. And here it is, William's opening words to his great history. The history of the English, from their arrival in Britain to his own times, has been written by Bede a man of singular learning and modesty, in a clear and captivating style. After him you will not, in my opinion, easily find any person who has attempted to compose in Latin the history of this people. Let others declare whether their researches in this respect have been, or are likely to be, more fortunate. My own labor, though diligent in the extreme, has, down to this period, been without its reward. There are, indeed, some notices of antiquity, written in the vernacular tongue after the manner of a chronicle, and arranged according to the years of our Lord. By means of these alone, the times succeeding this man, Bede, have been rescued from oblivion. For Vathelwerd, a noble and illustrious man, who attempted to arrange these chronicles in Latin, and whose intention I could applaud if his language did not disgust me, it is better to be silent. Nor has it escaped my knowledge that there is also a work of my Lord Edmer, 
written with a chastened elegance of style, in which, beginning from King Edgar, he has but hastily glanced at the times down to William I, and thence, taking a freer range, gives a narrative, copious and of great utility to the studious, until the death of Archbishop Ralph. Thus, from the time of Bede, there is a period of 223 years left unnoticed in his history, so that the regular series of time, unsupported by a connected relation, halts in the middle. This circumstance has induced me, as well out of love to my country as respect for the authority of those who have enjoined on me the undertaking, to fill up the chasm and to season the crude materials with Roman art. And that the work may proceed with greater regularity, I shall cull somewhat from Bede, whom I must often quote, glancing at a few facts, but omitting more. The first book, therefore, contains a succinct account of the English, from the time of their descent on Britain till that of King Egbert, who, after the different princes had fallen by various ways, gained the monarchy of almost the whole island. But as among the English arose four powerful kingdoms, that is to say, of Kent, of the West Saxons, of the Northumbrians, and of the Mercians, of which I purpose severally to treat if I have leisure, I shall begin with that which attained the earliest to maturity, and was also the first to decay. This I shall do more clearly if I place the kingdoms of the East Angles and of the East Saxons after the others, as little meriting either my labors or the regard of posterity. The second book will contain the chronological series of the kings to the coming of the Normans. The three following books will be employed upon the history of three successive kings, with the addition of whatever in their times happened elsewhere which, from its celebrity, may demand a more particular notice. This, then, is what I purpose, if the divine favor shall smile on my undertaking and carry me safely by those rocks of rugged diction on which Athelwerd, in his search after sounding and far-fetched phrases so unhappily suffered shipwreck. Should anyone, however, to use the poet's expression, peruse this work with sensible delight, I deem it necessary to acquaint him that I vouch nothing for the truth of long-past transactions but the consonance of the time. The veracity of the relation must rest with its authors. Whatever I have recorded of later times, I have either myself seen or heard from credible authority. However, in either part, I pay but little respect to the judgment of my contemporaries, trusting that I shall gain with posterity, when love and hatred shall be no more, if not a reputation for eloquence, at least credit for diligence. So, William claims to be writing out of twin concerns. The first is that there's this gap in written English history from the death of Bede up to at least the Norman Conquest, and someone needs to write a history that fills in those missing years. And, his second concern, they need to do it in good, stylish Latin to, quote, season the crude materials with Roman art, as he says. But of course, that statement itself points out the underlying assumption in the first claim. There isn't actually a lack of historical writing after Bede. It's just not an acceptable quality of history writing, either because it's in badly composed Latin or because it's in the crude vernacular. Now, to be fair, William's work does also perform a very valuable service in consolidating these disparate sources and producing a comprehensive historical survey, which was also lacking. He's not just indulging some snobbery or linguistic elitism. 
But he is nonetheless basically saying that his audience and patrons need a history of England that conforms to the current formal standards for good writing established within monastic literary culture, uh, both in terms of good style and also in terms of reliable and appropriate content. He's a bit like the academic who looks at a collection of popular true crime books on Jack the Ripper and decides that it's time someone give the subject a proper scholarly treatment with a full bibliography and a less lurid, more clinical style. In a way, this is also the project of our new author for today, Jeffrey Gamar. Except the culture he's reworking his sources to serve isn't monastic scholasticism, uh, and that's small s scholasticism for those for whom that might make a difference, but rather he's serving the courtly recreation of the Anglo-Norman aristocracy. Biographically, Gamer fits our typical pattern for our authors, in that virtually all we know about his life is contained in his own brief references to himself uh, within the Estoir, his only surviving work, uh, though he tells us that he wrote an earlier history of Celtic Britain, which is now lost. His name suggests that he is of Norman or possibly German background, uh, but he was fluent enough in English that he was not only able to collect English oral histories of his day, uh, and he's writing in the late 1130s, but he was also able to read and translate the 10th century English of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. We also know roughly where he lived, which would be in Lincolnshire, near to or in the household of his patron, the wife of local landowner Ralph Fitzgilbert, Lady Constance, who commissioned him to write the Estoir, and he may have been a private clerk of the family. And that's about it. In fact, you're going to hear almost all of the source sentences for this biographical information in the extract that follows, which is the conclusion to the Estoir, uh, which performs almost the same rhetorical function as uh, your typical preface. In it, Gamar explains who commissioned him to write, Lady Constance, and acknowledges his patron's assistance in helping him finish the work, uh, namely by procuring some sources for him. One of these, which he calls the Book of Walter Espick, is a book not written by, but rather owned by the nobleman Walter Espick, which most scholars agree was almost certainly a copy of Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia Regum Britanniae. Another book, which Gamer calls the book made by Walter the Archdeacon, uh, is a bit more mysterious. A third, which he refers to as an English book, Un Livre Anglais, must be a version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, though there's evidence that Gamar had yet a different recension from the several that we have surviving today. So far, he sounds a lot like William, acknowledging his sources, though as you listen, you might notice that Gamar is listing his sources as a kind of unqualified validation of his own material. Uh, he's a bit like a student trying to scrape together a bibliography for a freshman composition research paper. And he's not critically engaging with these sources and interrogating or evaluating them. He's just kind of supplying or name-checking them as proof of the work he's done. Or at least that's my take on it. But the more interesting part is what comes after the this book has been made possible by the generosity and support of dot 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 statement. Gamar goes on to explain to us why he stops his history at the death of William Rufus and doesn't continue on into the reign of Henry I. This is because someone else has already recently covered that territory, an author he calls David, though who this was is lost to the mists of time, along with whatever book he wrote. 
And then Gamar offers David some constructive criticism on how to best write history for a noble audience. So here's what Gamer says about writing history, uh, referring to himself in the third person in the opening sentences. The noble Lady Constance caused this history to be translated. Gamar was employed in March and April, and all the twelve months before he had translated about the kings, he obtained many copies of English books, likewise grammars, both in Romance and Latin, before he could bring it to an end. If his lady had not aided him, he could never have finished it. She sent to Helmsley for the book of Walter Espick. Robert, Earl of Gloucester, had caused this book to be translated according to the Welsh books which he had of the British kings. Walter Espick had asked for it, and Earl Robert sent it to him. Afterwards, Walter Espick lent it to Ralph Fitzgilbert. Lady Constance borrowed it from her lord, who loved her much. Geoffrey Gamar wrote this book. He has inserted the accounts which the Welsh left out. He had before obtained, whether right or wrong, the good book of Oxford, which Walter the Archdeacon made. So he corrected his book properly. From the history of Winchester, that of Washingborough, an English book, was corrected, in which an account is found written of the kings, and of all those emperors who were lords of Rome who received tribute from England, of the kings who had held under them, of their lives, of their acts, of their adventures, and of their deeds, how each preserved his kingdom, which loved peace, and which war. Whoever will look in this book will find as much in it as there can possibly be, and if anyone does not believe what I say, let him ask Nicholas de Tralee. Now, Gamer says, if he had warrant, he would first tell of King Henry, because if he desired to speak a little of him and to write the history of his life, he could tell a thousand things of him, of which David never wrote. Neither did the Queen of Louvain ever hold such a book in her hand. She caused a large book to be made. The first verse had notes for singing. David wrote well in prose and in verse, and well arranged the melody. Lady Constance caused it to be transcribed, and often perused it in her chamber. She had given for the writing a proved and heavy mark of silver. Whatever became of this book, it was well known in several places. But of the feast which the king held, of the rural entertainments, of the conversation, of the amusements, and of the love which the king showed, more than was or ever can be shown, of his being a Christian and blessed, the work of David says nothing. Now, Gamer says that he will pass into silence. But if he would yet burden himself a little more, he could write verses concerning the most noble deeds. That is, he could write of the love, of the amusements, of the rural feasts, of the conversation, of the feasts, of the noble deeds, of the largesses, of the riches, of the people which he brought, and of the large presents which the king made. Of all this a man might well sing. He ought to omit and pass over nothing. Now send for David, that if it please him he may continue, and let him not leave it. For if he will go on rhyming, he can much improve his book. And if he will not give himself to this, I will take his place. I will do it instead. The legend shall never go out of my custody until it be perfect. Now let us have peace, and let us make merry. One of the things this passage reminds us, something that's hardly a secret and is something we're told when we study epic poetry, and something even the epic poets themselves, be they Greek or Roman or Anglo-Saxon, frequently mention, 
is that this kind of history was designed to be performed musically. Sing, muse, the rage of Achilles, and all that. This underlying musicality is a fact we're aware of, but in my experience at least, it's very easy as readers of these poems, especially in translation, to leave that fact lost in the abstract. It doesn't really become concrete unless you're lucky enough to see something like Benjamin Bagby's performance of the first part of Beowulf. I think we're also kind of primed to forget or ignore references to poets singing because of all the later poets who keep up the motif of the poet's song in works that were never meant, really, for musical performance, uh, not to mention the very modern conceptual divide between poets and songwriters that, that we have. But a verse chronicle like Gamar's was essentially a kind of musical theater, uh, albeit in monologue form. Or at least it was written so that it could be. Gamar tells us that Lady Constance procured her own copy of the Book of David, which included some form of musical notation, uh, but that she perused it in her chamber. So this kind of poetry was presumably experienced both in musical performance uh, and in less performative contexts. Though it's debatable just what Gamer means by perused it in her chamber, that doesn't necessarily mean silent reading. In fact, some would say that's fairly unlikely though not impossible. But back to musical history. One popular comparison when trying to explain the poetic aesthetics of Beowulf is to connect it to the stylistics, uh, not to mention some of the machismo themes, of rap. And there's something to that analogy, and I've used it myself to try to pitch the relevance of Beowulf to skeptical students. Um, But my own epiphany came a few years ago when watching of all things, the Tim Burton film version of Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. Uh, And that's when it really clicked for me that, of course, Beowulf is built like a Sondheim-style all-verse musical. It's structured around set-piece speeches and scenes in which characters describe their goals and feelings out loud and essentially in song. It's more focused on setting mood in its descriptive passages than in producing a sense of immersive realism like modern fiction usually tries to do. In other words, the storytelling experience of this style of orally-derived epic is very similar to what fans of musicals look for in musicals. Now, I must confess that I'm not really much of a fan of musicals myself, and I'm not particularly knowledgeable on them, so I hesitate to stretch for any further connections. Um, But I will say uh, that that epiphany both enhanced my appreciation of what Sondheim does and what Beowulf does. That said saying, hey guys, we're going to study the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of musical theater, perhaps doesn't quite work to persuade people that it's cool in the same way that presenting it as medieval rap does. Um, But I guess that depends on your audience. You know, if the coolness and street cred factor of Hamilton continues to rise, maybe the musical history comparison will gain currency as a selling point for epic poetry. Anyway... The sad and frustrating thing is that I must remain content merely to encourage you to try to imagine the text as a song, because A, the translation I have to work with is a prose translation, uh, which does convey a bit of the choppy syntax and padding out of lines with stock descriptive phrases and repetitions, which are features of the poetry, um, but it isn't really singable, and B, even if it were singable, I, with no mock humility, must say that I have neither the talent nor the time to set it to music, and probably not the pipes to perform it, even if I could. So, alas. Without further ado, 
Here is Gamar's version of The Reign of Edgar, as translated by Joseph Stevenson. At the risk of introducing a slight element of confusion, I'm generally going to keep the versions of the character names that Stevenson uses, uh, which represent Gamar's more Frenchified forms of the Anglo-Saxon names, so that Alfthrith becomes Elstruet, Edgar's deceitful retainer Athelwald becomes Edelwalt, the baby Athelrad becomes Edelret, etc. We're also starting at a significant point in the Estuar itself. Uh, up to Edgar's reign, Gamar really is just translating the entries of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle into French verse, more or less. Um, but starting with the reign of Edgar, he leaves the text of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle behind and starts presenting more elaborate stories, synthesizing different written and oral traditions, along with, probably, a huge spoonful of his own invention as well. You'll hear in the first few sentences of this extract the more laconic chronicle language, which then opens up into this rather remarkable story. So, as you're listening, think music. And also, if William of Malmesbury focused on the ambiguous morality of his character's choices, you might just listen for ways in which Gamar takes a different tack. In the second year of Edred's reign came Anlef Quinlan. He seized and took Northumberland, finding that there was no one to defend it. Three years this Dane kept it, then the Northumbrians expelled him. They received Eric the son of Harold, and assured him that they would hold their fiefs of him. Two years he reigned in that kingdom, in the third year they chased him away. Edred then received Northumberland, but from that time he lived only a year. Then it happened that in this kingdom the English made Edwy their king. After Edred, Edwy was king, he was the son of Edmund. He was English. His dominion extended everywhere. He lived only three years. Afterwards his brother Edgar reigned, and held the land as an emperor. In his time the country improved. Peace was everywhere. There was no war. He reigned alone over all the kings and over the Scots and Welsh. Since Arthur died there never had been so powerful a king. This king much loved holy church. He knew how to distinguish between right and wrong. He labored to do good, for he was frank and amiable. He raised the tone of manners. All his neighbors submitted to him. By love and by civility, they were all drawn towards him. No one was found who warred against him or who entered his land for evil, except Torl, who rose against him. He took Westmoreland from him. For this crime, Torl received his death. The unlucky man began the war wrongfully. This king was wise and valiant. By his queen he had beautiful children. He had one son, of whom I can say that he was Edward of Shaftesbury. His daughter was called Saint Edith, a lady whom God blessed. He had yet three other sons, born of three mothers. Three mothers had these three. The king was devoted to women. When his queen was dead, his life was injured through women. A nobleman lived in his kingdom, whose wife I well know was dead, God had given him one daughter by her, no other child remained to him. The name of this rich man was Orgar. From Exeter to Frome there was neither town nor city in which Orgar had not possessions. But he was a wonderfully old man. What his daughter advised him to do, he did. No man was found who dared restrain him from what she did or commanded to be done. Elstruet was the name of this damsel, and I suspect that under heaven there was not one so beautiful. 
throughout the country, great was the renown of her beauty. And as in the neighborhood so many talked of it, some from the court came there, and those courtiers who saw her spoke much of her loveliness. King Edgar had listened how men spoke of her beauty. He had often heard it praised, so frequently had he heard it spoken of that he considered and thought within himself, Everywhere here I am king, and she is the daughter of a baron. I see no distinction. Her father was the son of an earl, of noble kings her mother was born. She is of sufficiently high extraction. I may well take her as my wife without disgrace. Then he called a knight and consulted with him. He was very dear to him, for he had brought him up, so he revealed his thoughts to him. Edelwalt, brother, said the king, I will tell thee of my secret. I love Elstruet, the daughter of Orgar. By everybody I have heard her praised so much, and her beauty so highly prized, that I desire to make her my wife, if she should be such as I have heard, and I could know it and be certified of her beauty. For this cause, I pray thee, go to see her. What thou shalt say about her, I will receive as truth. I will believe thee fully. Do this my affair. Do not stay, but come back quickly. Edelwalt went away to prepare. He did not once stop, nor would he delay till he arrived in Devonshire at the house of Orgar the Lord. He saluted him on the part of the king. By everyone he was welcomed. Orgar played at chess, a game which he learned from the Danes. The beautiful Elstruet played with him. There was not then such a damsel under heaven. Edelwalt stayed there a day and eagerly looked upon her. He looked so much at her face and complexion, her figure and hands, the beautiful flower, that he thought she was a fairy and that she was not born of woman. When he saw such beauty, such a flame was raised within him that this traitor determined in his boldness that, whether to his advantage or to his injury, he would not say a word of truth to his lord, and that he would also say that she was not so handsome. He portrayed the noble damsel unfairly. This rebounded upon him three years afterwards, for he was killed unconfessed. He went away from the place and came to the king at a council which he was holding. Earls, barons, freeholders, archbishops, bishops, and abbots were there. Hear what this deceiver did. He went to the king after dinner. He was received well and welcomed. But he had before spoken to those who were in favor with the king and who knew the secret. He entreated that they would assist him and that they would ask for him, the daughter of Orgar. And he had quite made them all believe that she was ill-made, ugly, and swarthy. Before the king he kneeled and privately said to him, King, of the lady to whom I went, I will relate to you the truth. Whoever else has lied, I will speak truth. You ought not to have such a wife. She has a countenance and an expression which make her very unpleasing. Other defects I saw in her, but I saw no beauty. To a man of my rank, it would not be any great harm if I should take her, preserve her honor, and show great respect to her father. On all sides, it was said to the king, that which he says has been repeated also to me. It is not well that you should have her. A knight should take her. The king was flexible and very vain. He was easily deceived. He took Edelwalt to speak to him, quite trusting that he had told the truth. Friend, said he, I fully believe you. Since she is such as I ought not to have her, I give her to thee with all the honor. Make her father thy lord, and take care of him as thy father-in-law. Espouse her, then come to me. The king held a rod. He presented it to him and gave his consent. Then he swore his fealty, and in this place perjured himself. A man who deceives has no law, 
nor should anyone put trust in his faith. This traitor went forth from the king as a felon he had deceived him. He went to Orgar, negotiated with him, and took his daughter, seizing the honor. He stayed so long in this country that the lady became pregnant with a son. But the beautiful woman, if she could have helped it, would never have been pregnant by Edelwald. She did not love him, and she had been told how the king had been deceived. He himself in secret had made this known to Elstra. At the right time, the child was born. Would you hear what this disloyal man did? Because he still feared the king, who was very amorous, he went to him and so much entreated him that he caused him to be godfather to his child. When this was done, she became, in spirit, the king's sister. Thus, Edelwalt had no fear from the king. The king, who was candid and kind, perceived nothing of this. He did not protect himself against this deceitful man. He had brought him up. Consequently, he loved him. Until it happened that at a supper the king heard the lady spoken of. She was much praised on all sides. The knights who spoke of her said in their conversation that in all the world there was not one so beautiful, and that were she still a virgin, she would be well worthy of being queen. Afterwards they spoke of her intelligence, and that they could assert that she was both beautiful and wise, and open and frank in conversation, that no man could discover in her any bad intentions, either as to raillery or evil habits. She was wise enough to take care of herself. The king wondered much. Thus he often heard them talk. He said to himself in thought, I believe that Edelwalt has deceived me. He was much occupied in thought about Elstruad. From this hour he resolved to err from bad to worse. King Edgar resolved within himself that he would set out for Devonshire. To hunt stags, he said he would go, but in his heart he had another plan. He was not far distant from the country. Many a man goes a greater distance in a day. Elstruet was at a mansion where the king arrived on the evening of the second day. It was near the wood where he wished to hunt. That night he remained there to lodge. When the time came that he should sup, the sun still shone brightly. He then demanded of his companion where she was and where her father was. Edelwalt replied, In this apartment, king, you have fasted too long. Go and eat. The king heard him and perceived that if Edelwalt could prevent it, he should not see her. Then a knight took his hand, and he went up to the apartment. He found many ladies and young maidens there. He spoke to none. Elstruet he knew from her beauty, and she gave welcome to the king. She wore a wimple. The king had known her from her appearance. Then she smiled at him and looked towards him, and afterwards kissed her companion. In that kiss, love was kindled. Elstruet was the flower of the others. The king, in play and jestingly, raised the drapery of her mantle. Then he saw her figure so beautifully formed that for a few moments he was quite lost in contemplating the loveliness he had discovered. He led her down into the hall. They sat together at the repast. They had to change drinking cups, and the custom was such that he was much prized who drank freely. In cups of gold and mazers, in horns of oxen filled with wine, were the wassail and the drink hail, till Edgar went to sleep. When the lady drank with him, he kissed her, as was usual. She kissed him innocently, but the king was inflamed by her beauty, and if he could not have her love in another manner, he determined upon an extreme measure. That man resolves upon an extreme measure who takes a woman from her husband. 
That night, the king remained quiet. He had never seen such a woman before. He thought in his heart that if he could not have her, he should die, and that nothing would save him. Now he seeks a plan and an evil design, which often has the power to speak within him. He is much absorbed with love, and seeks to use the means upon which he is determined. He hunted in the forest of that country, and sent her the stags he took. He made her many other presents. Three times he went to see her. When he went from that country, he left it with a flame within him. She had heard so much, and understood that the king wished to take her. The court was at Salisbury. He only waited eight days. Then he made a great gathering. Many barons of high extraction came. The king had summoned them in order to guard the land. With the others came Edelwald. The king did what he wished with him. He sent him to York. He entrusted him with the land in the north. All judicature from the Humber northwards he committed to his command. Hastily and without delay, he set out to direct the affairs of the country. He received such writs as he desired. Now Lord Edelwald departed. In going to this land, he did not know what people he would meet there, they were outlaws and enemies. There then this wicked man was killed. Some say that King Edgar sent this company, but no one knows so much about it as to dare to affirm that it was he who killed him. The announcement of his death came to the king. He could not then take vengeance, for he did not find out who deserved it, who had done the deed, nor who killed him. Afterwards he sent to take possession of his fief, and he made Elstruet come to court. She came to court hastily, the king wished to tell her his desire. He only waited one single month. The king was at Gloucester. The king of Wales was with him, and there were many knights in his halls. Then came Elstruet and her household, who was exceedingly well attired. All the barons of Somersetshire, of Devonshire, and of Dorsetshire, with the earls of Cornwall, came with her to this assemblage. They did this because it was their duty. Each one held a large fief under her. She was invested in the fief of her father, she brought many of her relations. What shall I say of her dress? She had a ring on her finger which alone was of greater value than all her clothing. She wore a dress of black silk which trained along the hall. Over this she had a little mantle which was gray fur within, blue without. Her blyalt was of other silk. She was too beautiful. Have done, Gamar. Hesitate to discourse of her beauty by dwelling on it. If I should tell all the truth from the morning till the evening, I should neither have told nor related the third part of her beauty. The king rose and came towards her. He took her by the hand. When he held it, he was much pleased. He took her and lodged her in an apartment. He would not lodge far away from her. Under heaven he had nothing which was so dear to him. On the morrow he caused his private clerks to robe themselves in a minster very early in the morning. Now he wished to draw this business to a close. He caused the beautiful Elstuet to be brought, and he married her in the chapel. Then he sent for his barons, and summoned them by a lawful proclamation. There was not one of them who dared linger without that day eating at his table. Because of the joy which the king wished to bring, he caused himself to be much adorned and put on his royal robes. He loved Elstuet much and was full of joy, for he had had her clothed in the same manner and crowned and served with reverence. The king wore a crown of gold, had a feast and gave large presents. Two bishoprics, three abbeys, religious houses and lordships he restored this day. To several disinherited people he returned their honors. He so conducted himself towards all the people that no one hated him, everyone loved him. Thus he kept a festival in his halls, and much honored the kings of Wales. 
They carried the three swords, as the clergy had anciently ordered, and writings had been found which exactly agreed with this custom. I cannot tell you all the doings nor the magnificence of the feast, but I relate to you that which the history relates, that there were great splendor and great rejoicing. After an interval of not longer than a month, King Edgar was in London. He and the queen were in bed. Around them was wrought a curtain of scarlet silk. Here Archbishop Dunstan came into the room very early in the morning. This archbishop rested himself upon a stool of crimson embroidery. He spoke to the king in the English language, and demanded of him who that was who was lying with him in his bed. The king replied, This is the queen, Elstuet, to whom this kingdom is favorably inclined. The archbishop said, This is wrong. It had been better for you that you were dead than lie here in adultery. Your souls will go to punishment. When the queen heard this, she was very angry with the archbishop. She became his enemy so much that she never loved him afterwards to the last day of his life. But he did not care. He could not allow that a man should do wrong and leave that which was right. He often admonished them and prayed them to separate. His admonitions had no effect. The king loved her, and she loved him. He afterwards had a son by her, and he called him Edelret, after his ancestor, a noble king who was named Edelret. But it happened that when he was born, St. Swithin died. And when the child was six years old, the valiant Edgar died. So there's the love saga of Edgar and Alfthrith, as sung by Geoffrey Gamer. There's so much we could pull out to talk about, um, but we're already running so long. Uh, I could talk about how Gamar's version has been considered to be one of the first known examples of a tale of courtly love, and that it has in place many of the major tropes of that genre, which is really going to blossom over the next hundred years. We could talk about how Gamar uses the ideology of courtly love to recast this Anglo-Saxon royal court in the mold of a 12th century Norman court. We could talk about the different characterizations of Althrith from first William of Malmesbury, who lets her be an independent schemer, uh, almost equal to her doomed husband, uh, as opposed to Gamar, who makes her a paragon of all womanly virtues. And the different characterizations of the relationship, from William's tale of kingly lust and jealous murder of a rival, to Gamar's tale of true love and a relationship that's actually carefully kept free of any true adultery. There's no consummation until the first husband is duly dead, and we can't even point the finger at Edgar for that death with any certainty. But to go into this would be another hour of podcast, at least. But I think what we can say, briefly enough, is that in this narrative, Gamar totally delivers on the kind of storytelling that he advises his fellow poet David to utilize. We are not wanting for descriptions of feasting and hunting and courtly entertainments, nor of rich apparel or of beautiful bodies. This is the bones of history refleshed and filmed in glorious technicolor with a sizable dollop of Vaseline smeared around the edges of the lens. This is history fit for singing in the court of a king, or at least those who aspire to such a circle. Antonia Gransden, who had much to laud William of Malmesbury for last time, has far less praise for Gamar. She writes, quote, Gamar himself united the Norman tradition of royal panegyric with the nascent tradition of courtly romance. The value of his work as a historical source is small. 
Though he used a lost version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, very little of his additional material can have derived from that version. And even when not led astray by his love of legends and eulogy, he is an inaccurate writer. Granston is, of course, writing from the perspective of a modern historian, writing largely for modern historians, and so all of the writers she surveys in her book, Historical Writing in England, are being evaluated according to their usefulness to the work of the modern historian. Therefore, the virtues she praises are accuracy, objectivity, or at least some semblance of it, um, and access to unique local information. On these scales, Gaymar rates very low, with the possible exception of the last bit, as he does seem to be preserving some of the local pre-conquest oral traditions of Lincolnshire. For example, uh, Gaymar is not that far from Werrell, where Althrith ultimately establishes her nunnery in penitence for the killing of her stepson Edward. It's possible that the quite favorable depiction of her here is because she had a more celebrated memory in the district. Uh, and in Gaymar's version of the murder story, too, he rather distances her from the actual assassination plot, or at least he clouds it with ambiguity. He's also clearly using the bones of whatever version of the love triangle story he collected to prop up exemplary renditions of the proper behavior of noble knights and princes according to the emerging ideology of courtly love and chivalric virtue, um, so that, for example, disloyalty to one's lord becomes the highest grade of villainy. Like William, Gaymar is also echoing the biblical tale of King David and Bathsheba. Last episode, I asked you to keep the death of Bathsheba's first husband, Uriah the Hittite, in mind for today's text, uh, and that's because Gamar's tale hews somewhat closer to the biblical parallel than William's version. Uh, William clearly puts the murder weapon in Edgar's hands, whereas Gamar has Edgar act much more like King David, who sends Uriah off to certain death in battle by means of a letter, sort of keeping the blood off of his own hands. And we continue to have the St. Dunstan and Prophet Nathan parallel in play here as well, uh, with the saint upbraiding the king for his sins and hinting at the peril this puts the whole kingdom into. I think contrasting these two versions of this story give us just one more teensy little cautionary lesson. It's easy to read William and then Gamar and say, oh yeah, Gamar's totally just writing historical fiction. This is an entertaining romp, a work of literature and not history. William's account is serious history, way more reliable and straight shooting, etc., etc. But maybe it's just that some of William's artifice and literary embellishment is harder to detect because it's not as ostentatious or obviously eager to please as Gaymar's. And in that sense, I think it's a bit like prestige historical films. Call me a hopeless optimist, but I like to think that the movie 300 is not going to fool anybody into thinking that's what the Battle of Thermopylae was really like. And most of us have a pretty good sense that the real Calamity Jane Cannery did not in real life look or act like Doris Day. But there's a siren song of seeming verisimilitude and earnestness to something like Daniel Day-Lewis's Lincoln, or Fassbender's Steve Jobs, or even Robin Weigert's alcoholic Jane Cannery from HBO's Deadwood, that does lull us into a belief in the truth of those representations when they too are, of course, the products of art and artifice. All right. Our medieval mystery word from last episode was E. Just a pair of E's. This could mean a lot of things. 
but what I was looking for was its use as an Anglo-Norman French word, the language of Geoffrey Gaymar. In Anglo-Norman, E, maybe it's E, eh, I, I don't think it's supposed to be two syllables, but I, I'm not schooled enough to know. But E is one word for bee, as in the honey-producing insect, uh, E's in the plural. I haven't been able to determine quite what the etymology of this word is, um, but it's almost certainly the product of dropping a consonant. Uh, but it seems to me that it could just as easily be the B from the English B as it could be the P from the Old French and Latin you know, apis and variations thereof. But it's a good onomatopoetic word for bees. Ease. I didn't know until I looked it up that the English word bee comes from a Germanic root that traces back to a word meaning to fear, and specifically to quiver or tremble in fear. And I love that that works both ways, in that most humans have an innate fear of bees, and of course, bees buzz, so that the quivering can apply to both parties. Bees figure prominently in a lot of medieval allegorical lore, uh, just as they did in classical allegories of perfect social order. Uh, I thought I'd share one of these before we go, Bees are an insect that humans have had lots of opportunities to observe closely, since they're actually raised and kept for their honey. Um, though I was intrigued to learn that it wasn't until the 18th century that an artificial beehive was invented that you could open up and take the honey from without destroying. Before that time, the only way to harvest honey from a man-made beehive was to destroy the hive, and for the most part kill, or at least evict, all the bees. It makes ancient honey production shockingly inefficient and kind of brutal. Uh, but anyway, we've lived alongside bees for a long time, which means that ancient and medieval descriptions of hive society are a fascinating blend of very realistic description of bee behavior, uh, with that behavior misconstrued because of cultural prejudices, like, for example, the persistent belief that bees have a king instead of a queen, uh, and all of that mixed in with just outright fantasy. And all of this is on display in this excerpt from a 13th century writer, Bartholomaeus Anglicus, as translated by Robert Steele, and which I found on the wonderful medieval bestiary website, uh, bestiary.ca. The properties of bees are wonderful, noble, and worthy. For bees have one common kind as children, and dwell in one habitation, and are closed within one gate. One travail is common to them all, one meat is common to them all, one common working, one common use, one fruit, and flight is common to them all, and one generation is common to them all. Also, maidenhood of body without whim is common to them all, and so is birth also, for they are not meddled with service of Venus neither resolved with lechery, neither bruised with sorrow of birth of children. And yet they bring forth most swarms of children. Bees make among them a king, and ordain among them common people. And though they be put and set under a king, yet they are free and love their king that they make, by kind love, and defend him with great defense, and hold it honor and worship to perish and be spilt for their king and do their king so great worship that none of them dare go out of their house, nor to get meat, but if the king pass out and take the principality of flight. And bees choose to their king him that is most worthy and noble in highness and fairness, and most clear in mildness, for that is chief virtue in a king. For though their king have a sting, yet he useth it not in wreck. 
and also bees that are unobedient to the king, they deem themselves by their own doom for to die by the wound of their own sting. And of a swarm of bees is none idle. Some fight, as it were, in battle, in the field against other bees. Some are busy about meat, and some watch the coming of showers. And some behold concourse and meeting of dews, and some make wax of flowers, and some make cells now round, now square, with wonder binding and joining and evenness. And yet, nevertheless, among so diverse works, none of them doth espy, nor wait to take out of another's travail, neither taketh wrongfully, neither stealeth meat, but each seeketh and gathereth by his own flight and travail among herbs and flowers that are good and convenable. Bees sit not on fruit, but on flowers, not withered, but fresh and new, and gather matter of the which they make both honey and wax. And when the flowers that are nigh unto them be spent, then they send spies for to espy meat in further places. And if the night falleth upon them in their journey, then they lie upright to defend their wings from rain and from dew, that they may in the morrow tide fly the more swifter to their work with their wings dry and able to fly. And they ordain watches after the manner of castles, and set all night until it be day, till one bee wake them all with twice buzzing or thrice, and with some manner trumping. Then they fly all, if the day be fair on the morrow. And the bees that bear and bring what is needful dread blasts of wind, and fly therefore low by the ground when they be charged, lest they be leaded with some manner of blasts, and charge themselves sometimes with gravel or with small stones, that they may be the more steadfast against blasts of winds by heaviness of the stones. The obedience of bees is wonderful about the king, for when he passeth forth, all the swarm in one cluster passeth with him, and he is beclipped about with the swarm, as it were with a host of knights. And is then aneath seen that time for the multitude that followeth and serveth him. And when the people of bees are in travail, he is within, and as it were, governor, and goeth about to comfort others for to work. And only he is not bound to travail. And all about him are certain bees with stings, as it were, champions, and continual wardens of the king's body. And he passeth seldom out, but when all the swarm shall go out. His outgoing is known certain days to fore by voice of the host, as it were, arraying itself to pass out with the king. So with those bees cast out of our bonnet, the final order of business is to introduce a new riddle. Here it is in question form. Tell me, what is that which pleaseth one man and displeaseth another? Once again, tell me. What is that which pleaseth one man and displeaseth another? And I challenge you to say that uh, displeaseth is a real tongue twister. I'll be back in about two weeks, maybe a bit longer as I'll be traveling and might need a few extra days to get the recording done. In the meantime, we're on Twitter where you can follow us at MDT Podcast. You can also find out more information about this and every episode and leave comments at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And for more extended feedback than Twitter can sustain, you can email me at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. So until next time, may your history be sung in the feast halls and resound off the timber and stones, and thanks for listening.